Nahum was a prophet who prophesied concerning the destruction of Nineveh. The book of Nahum is one that should kind of, it's sort of a partner in a way to the book of Jonah. You remember the story of Jonah where Jonah was commanded to go and tell Nineveh that God was going to destroy them. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And they turned to the Lord, and God spared them. Jonah wasn't too happy about that. But amazingly, they turned to God, and as a result, he didn't have to destroy them at that point. Now, the book of Nahum is a prophecy against Nineveh that came about 100 years later. The whole generation of people who had turned to God earlier during the time of Jonah had now reverted back to their nation's old ways. And once again, the Assyrians and the city of Nineveh in particular were just involved in, in awful sin and abusing, abusing each other and, and ripping people off and being cruel and in every way just going against everything that God says is important to him. And so... And of course, they ended up, the Assyrians ended up uh, you know, taking advantage of the northern kingdoms of Israel and carrying them off captive and treating them very cruelly and everything too. So now God's seen what they've backslidden into, but it's not really the same people. Most of the people who were saved in the earlier um, revival under Jonah had died and so now you have a new generation coming up, and they could choose either between their heritage or what their parents had learned from, and unfortunately most of them chose to revert to Assyrian tradition, and they were evil. The, the Hebrew word Nahum is a word that means comfort. You know that from the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah means comfort or God is my comfort, the Yah coming from Yahweh, and the, and the word for comfort that's the same as Nahum, Nehemiah, comfort of Jehovah. Nahum's just shortened to comfort. Now you go, why in the world is a pronouncement of judgment, severe judgment, a comfort? Well, if you're the, per if you're the people who are being treated poorly by the uh, those in Nineveh, then it's a comfort to you that they aren't going to continue to be able to get away with what they've been getting away with. So, the burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. And we're not totally sure where Elkishites came from. There are several different cities that have a similar name to this. Most likely, interestingly enough, uh, the most likely candidate is a city that's down in Judah. And so it's generally thought that Nahum was a prophet in Judah prophesying against Nineveh on behalf of the northern tribes. And so he says, God is jealous and the Lord avenges. Now whenever he talks about God being jealous, it's really a, it's a different use of the word jealous that we typically use. When we say that someone's jealous, um, what we usually mean is that they are very selfishly resentful of anyone who participates with the person that they 
are consumed with. And so, you know, we talk about a jealous boyfriend or a jealous girlfriend or a jealous husband or a jealous wife. The word doesn't mean that specifically. It really just means someone who really cares intensely. So when that care becomes inappropriate, and it, it could often reflect what we call jealousy, but when it talks about God being jealous, it just means he's very focused and, and cares about those who are his. He's jealous and the Lord avenges. You mess with his people, he's going to mess with you. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. But, verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. So God is capable of anger, and his anger is always justified. But he has a slow fuse. He's very patient. He doesn't react quickly with anger, and often we, we want him to. We wish God would get as knee-jerk angry as we do, but God really is patient. He really wants to give people a chance, and of course he has with, with all of us, and he did with, with Nineveh for quite a period of time, but he will not at all acquit the wicked. Someone who refuses to walk with God is going to pay the consequences. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds or the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry, dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither and the flower of Lebanon wilts. These are three very fruitful places. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The idea right off the bat setting the stage, pay attention to who God is. You don't just mess with him. You don't question who he is. As we know the Assyrians certainly later had done, always questioning, eh, you know, who's God? He's just like all these other gods of all the other places that we've conquered. And so, um, you know, you remember Sennacherib and during the time of Isaiah, which was probably during roughly this same time of history. And Sennacherib was just so arrogant about, well, I'm not worried about God. And so Nahum is starting off by going, you don't mess with God. God is powerful. God can do whatever he wants. Do you realize who you're trifling with? And so, but then he says, the Lord is good, verse 7, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. So yes, you don't mess with him. Yes, you don't want to cross him. But at the same time, that great power of God, though, it should scare you if you are against God. Man, that power is on your side if you love God and trust him and walk with him. And so God is God. You should be you know, concerned if you're against him, but if you're walking with him, that power should be just a great comfort to you. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows who trusts in him. 
But with an ever-flowing flood, overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place, and darkness will pursue his enemies. Nineveh he's going to destroy. What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Whatever plans Nineveh has against God, it's not going to work. Affliction will not rise up a second time. You had your chance. You're not going to get another one. For while tangled like thorns and while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble fully dried. From you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. You have a leader who's a big shot, and he has some real bad ideas about what he intends to do to God's people, and he thinks he's greater than God. This is Sennacherib. And it's not going to happen. They had already conquered the northern kingdoms, but remember now they were coming down into the south and they came right up to Jerusalem and were threatening Jerusalem. And so the idea is he thinks because of what he's got away with so far, he's going to continue. He's a wicked counselor and his days are numbered. Thus says the Lord, though they are safe and likewise many, they feel secure and there's a lot of them, Yet in this manner they will be cut down when he passes through. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. So the people, the children of the northern tribes, they've been afflicted, but their days of affliction are almost over. For now I will break off his yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. So you guys have been enslaved and you deserved it. And I used the Assyrians to judge you, but... I'm going to be setting you free now because the guy who was the instrument of judgment, it's his, it's his turn, his day has come. The Lord has given a command concerning you. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Now he's speaking to Nineveh. Out of the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the molded image. I'll dig your grave for you are vile. You make me sick. Behold on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. O Judah, keep your appointed feasts. Perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. So he says, pass the good news from mountaintop to mountaintop, and they would, through doing smoke signals and, and other kinds of signals over the distance, the word could spread. And he says, spread the good news. Peace is coming. The, the wicked one's just about done. So verse 1 of chapter 2, he who scatters has come up before your face. God is in your face, Sennacherib. Man the fort, watch the road, strengthen your flanks, fortify your power mightily. God is saying, okay, tough guy, give me your best shot. You get ready, I'm coming. For the Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob like the excellence of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out and ruined their vine branches. Here he's referring to Jacob as being the two tribes in the south, in Judah, and referring to Israel as the other um, ten tribes. And so what he's saying is he's going to rescue, protect Judah, and at the same time that's going to be what will ultimately set um, Israel free as well. The shields of his mighty men are made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. 
The chariots come with flaming torches in the day of his preparation, and the spears are brandished. They're going to have major casualties. The chariots rage in the streets. They jostle one another in the broad roads. They seem like torches. They run like lightning. He remembers his nobles. They stumble in their walk. So here comes this invasion, and the, the Assyrian king is crying out for all the leaders and the soldiers, and it's like they haven't expected this. And they've been kind there, so it's like they wake up out of a sound sleep and hear the warning, and they're kind of stumbling around. They stumble in their walk, they make haste to her walls, and the defense is prepared. The gates of the rivers are opened, and the palace is dissolved. It's just going to wash away. It is decreed she shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up, and her maidservant shall lead her as with the voice of doves beating their breasts. So she's going to be the one who's the victim now, of course, at the hand of the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 8, though Nineveh of old was like a pool of water, now they flee away. So Nineveh had it made like a nice pool, but now he says, I'm draining your pool. Halt, halt, they cry, but no one turns back. They don't even have time as they're running away to grab all their spoil. Take spoil of silver, take spoil of gold. There is no end of treasure or wealth of every desirable prize, but she is empty, desolate, and waste. The heart melts and the knees shake. Much pain is in every side, and all their faces are drained of color." Just utter devastation to Nineveh. Where is the dwelling of the lions? Basically saying, so Nineveh, you guys are the tough lions. You've got it made. Where are you now? The feeding place of the young lions where the lion walked, the lioness and lion's cub, and no one has made them afraid. You guys were, you thought you were the king of the jungle. The lion tore in pieces enough for his cubs Killed for his lionesses, filled his caves with prey, and his dens with flesh. Well, behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall be heard no more. And now just mourning for the city of Nineveh, woe to the bloody city. It's all full of lies and robbery. Its victims never departs. So again, the corruption that was there, the exploitation of others. The noise of a whip and the noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of clattering chariots. Horsemen charge with bright sword and glittering spear. There is a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses, they stumble over the corpses because of the multitude of harlotries of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. Using these um, figures of speech, these metaphors, to say, you are the ones who have led other people astray. You are the people who hoisted your pagan gods onto other people and cause them to, um, to leave the faithfulness that they once had in God. And the Assyrians had certainly done that to the northern tribes. 
But God has news for them. Verse 5, behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdom your shame. I will cast abominable filth upon you, make you vile and make you a spectacle. God said, I'm just going to completely humiliate you in every way possible. It shall come to pass that all who look upon you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? See, I mean, nobody's going to feel sorry for Nineveh because the Assyrians had abused everyone they could get their hands on. They had been cruel to every other nation around them and built their power based on that. And, you know, when you think might makes right, and so you just take over as many places as you can, ultimately when your day comes and you fall, no one's going to help you. No one's going to feel sorry for you. They've all kind of been waiting and hoping to see this day. And he goes, "What do you think you're better than no Ammon? That was a city, the city of No or Thebes that's in northern Egypt. That was a city that was the capital of the northern part of Egypt that had been destroyed. He goes, are you better than them? It was situated by the river, the Nile, that had the waters around her whose rampart was the sea, whose wall was the sea. Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength, and it was boundless. Put and Lubin, two of their allies, were your helpers. <coughs> and so Assyria had come all the way down there to northern Egypt and had done destruction and devastation, had basically taken over northern Egypt and made them just sort of a vassal state of the Assyrian Empire. And he goes, you think you're better than they are? Yet she was carried away. She went into captivity. Her young children also were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound in chains. So this is the way you treated others. This is the way you are going to be treated. You also will be drunk. You'll be hidden. You also will seek refuge from the enemy. All your strongholds are fig trees with ripened figs. If they are shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. An interesting image. He's basically saying, you're going to be easy pickings. Just like when figs are ripe, you know they're ripe because they just fall right off the tree. And he said, in the same way, you're ripe for judgment because of what you've done. And all they're going to have to do is kind of come and shake you a little bit and you're going to fall apart. Surely your people are in your midst are women. He's kind of saying you're, all your soldiers are like women. The gates, feminists don't like that. The gates of your land are wide open for your enemies. Fire shall devour the bars of your gates. Draw your water for the siege. Get ready. Fortify your strongholds. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Make strong the brick kiln. They would build, you know, fortifications out of bricks. There the fire will devour you. So what you build to protect you is just going to be the oven that cooks you. The sword will cut you off. It will eat you up like a locust. Make yourself many like the locusts. Make yourself many like the swarming locusts. You have multiplied your merchants more than the stars of heaven. And Nineveh was a huge trading center. It was 
massive businesses there. And he's saying, yeah, you've got a lot of people, but locusts have a lot of locusts. And yeah, I'm impressed. You have lots of businessmen, all right. But the locust plunders and flies away. That's what you do. You go and take advantage of other people and take their stuff. Your commanders are like swarming locusts. Your generals like great grasshoppers, which camp in the hedges on a cold day. And when the sun rises, they flee away. And the place where they are is not known. So he said, you guys are acting like locusts the way you take advantage of people. But, but here comes someone who's going to shoo you away and no one's even going to know where you went. Your shepherds slumber. The people who should have been the leaders, the people who should have been sharing the truth with them, they're asleep on the job. O king of Assyria, your nobles rest in the dust. Your people are scattered on the mountains and no one gathers them. There's no leadership. Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. All who hear news of you will clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually. Now you go, that's a little different than when Jonah was there teaching Nineveh, but the difference isn't in the message. The difference is in the response. Still, at this late date, if, if they had only repented, and Sennacherib had several opportunities, communications from Judah, that would have allowed him to repent and save his nation. But in his pride, he, he wouldn't do that. And as a result, he said, all that's left is the applause of the rest of the world. As you are crushed, as you are burned, as you are destroyed, no one's going to lay a hand to help you. If they raise their hands at all, it's going to be to clap because they're glad you're gone. Rough, uh, rough book there, named for a book called Comfort. But again, <laughs> it would be a great comfort to the children of Israel who had been treated horribly by the Assyrians and now would have a chance ultimately to be set free. But it was also a comfort to those who were holed up in Jerusalem, surrounded by the Assyrians, believing there was no way out, receiving threatening communication from Sennacherib. As you remember, you know, Isaiah laying that letter from Sennacherib out before the Lord in desperation. When you get a word like this, you go, that is, that is comforting. Not because you're glad and they deserve it, but because the only thing that was going to stop Assyria, stop Nineveh, would be for God to crush him. He knew he couldn't, couldn't squash him. They were just going to keep coming. So we come to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is uh, written much later, right towards the end of the kingdom of Judah. The Assyrians are, are long gone. The Babylonians have taken them over. And now Judah is pretty much in its in its late stages, during the same time as Jeremiah. And the name Habakkuk means one who embraces or one who hangs on or clings. And it's an encouragement to turn to the Lord and to hang on to him, but it's also probably a picture of somebody who's just barely hanging on. And so in a kind of a double meaning, perhaps, but that was just the guy's name who wrote it. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. So here's, 
his vision. And Habakkuk asks a few questions of God, and these are legitimate questions to ask, and maybe sometimes you've been in a position where you'd want to ask a question like this. He said, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear, even cry out to you, violence and you will not save? Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble for plundering and violence are before me? There is strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. So the prophet's just crying out and saying, God, how long? We see that we're sinking. The nation is just being picked away at and surrounded and everyone wants a piece of us and the violence is increasing and I'm praying and it seems like you're not doing anything, God. Why? How long? And so often when we go through difficult times, we, we're crying out to God and trying to make sense of it, but sometimes all, about all we can pray is, God, how long? Okay, I get it. I have to take it. This is happening. You must have a purpose in it. But God, is there an end to this? You can take almost anything if you know how long it's going to last. But so often the trials that God takes us through don't have a defined end. The truth is when we're wondering how long it's going to last, we don't know that, but sometimes it may get worse before it gets better. And, and so the prophet is just legitimately crying out and going, okay, God, how much can a nation take? But the Lord responds here, look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. What a, what a great, what a great uh, promise from God. When you're going, God, how long? And he goes, you know what? If I told you, you wouldn't believe it. But it's going to happen in your lifetime. In your days, you're going to see amazing things that I do. You're going to be utterly astounded because of what I do. And I want to tell you, whatever you're going through, whenever you're struggling and feeling like this is just going to go on forever, there's no way. It's not going to go on forever. And if you knew what God was going to do, you'd feel so stupid because you've been worrying so much. If you could see the perspective and understand his plans for you, you would just go, wow, if I had known that, a lot would have changed. And God goes, if I had told you that, you wouldn't have believed it. And that's what he says here. He says, for indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans. I'm doing something and I'm using the Babylonians to do it. A bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. Yeah, I'm going to use those guys. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. That's funny. They're just their own God. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and 
more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. Hey, God, wait a minute. This is what you're doing? This is what's going to be so great? I, you know, never mind. I don't want to know. They scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it everywhere they go. They just, they have so many people, they're so mighty, they pile the dirt up and come over the walls. Then his mind changes and he transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing this power to his God. So he goes, you're going to see the Babylonians, yeah, they're powerful, they're amazing, they're mighty. And I'm the one who's allowing this to happen because I'm using them. But they're going to go too far, and they're going to believe that instead of believing that I did this, they're going to think they did it. Now think about what we know about Babylonian history, especially as it relates to during the time of Daniel, as they had opportunity after opportunity to recognize who God was. And at different times, Nebuchadnezzar would and say, yep, yeah, God's the real God. And yet, ultimately, they were their own God. And so God would say, that will be their downfall, that they will ascribe this power to their own gods, to themselves, basically. Now, the prophet goes, excuse me, let me ask another question. Maybe I didn't ask that quite right. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? I mean, aren't you permanent? Aren't you timeless and holy? We shall not die, are we? Oh, Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. Oh, rock, you have marked them for correction. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and Hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he. <coughs> God, let me get this straight. You're a good guy, right? These guys are really bad people. And our theology tells us you can't even look at wickedness. You can't have any fellowship with darkness. So I don't get it. Why are you letting these people prosper? Why aren't you saying anything? Why aren't you making the call? Why aren't you wiping them out right now? Verse 14, why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? Why do you even make these people who don't follow God? They take up all of them with a hook. They catch them in their net and gather them in their dragnet. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet. So that which you let them conquer, they praise the tools that you gave them in order to conquer it because by them their share is sumptuous and their food plentiful. Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? God, are you just going to let them keep going? I thought you were different than that. I will stand my watch, verse 1 of chapter 2, and set myself on the rampart 
and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. So the prophet goes, okay, God, I'm waiting. What are you going to tell me? I just made a pretty good case here for you to destroy these guys. And uh, like most people who are in an argument, I'm waiting to hear what he says because I already have some good comebacks. I already have some stuff that I'm going to tell him when he tells me what I figure he's going to tell me after he corrects me. Boy, I'm going to tell God a thing or two. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it because it will surely come. It will not tarry. God says, what I said I'm going to do, write it down and you'll see. But give me time. Don't rush me. In the appointed time, at the right time, I am going to deliver you. I am going to grant the victory. Right now, I'm just luring them in. I'm letting them come on and attack because I have a counterattack that you're not going to believe. And so just be patient. If you're having problems with me and you want to argue with me, go ahead and write it down, and we'll see who's right after it's all over. He goes on to say, Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him. In other words, people who have pride aren't thinking correctly. But the just shall live by his faith. Now, who are the proud he's talking about? Obviously, those Babylonian leaders, the Assyrian leaders before him, who thought they were above God. And God says, look at them. There's something wrong with them. But wait a minute. You're the guy who was just wanting to argue with God. You're the guy who's correcting God. You're the one who's suggesting that God is late. Something's not right with you. There's something out of sync with the way you're looking at things. And the, the answer, the key, is in this phrase, the just shall live by his faith. Now, if the just live by faith, who is it who doesn't have faith? the unjust, and the proud. And so God's making it clear here. You're asking questions, and that's okay. And you're not understanding why I don't work in a timing that's better, but I'm just telling you, just wait, and you're going to see my timing is perfect. But in the process, I'm teaching you to walk by faith. This phrase, the just shall live by phrase, by faith, Paul uses it over in Romans, and the author of Hebrews, whoever wrote Hebrews, also uses this same phrase, quotes the same <coughs> scripture, and it's a key to both of those books. It's key to understanding the Christian life. It's one of the reasons why I believe Paul wrote Hebrews. The book's anonymous because Paul is approaching the Jews to make a, a case for salvation when he was the the apostle to the gentiles probably chose to do the book anonymously but this catchphrase that he had pulled out of 
Habakkuk um, that he had used so powerfully in Romans. I think he used it in Hebrews too. What does it mean? The just shall live by faith. Well, faith is believing when you don't have all the evidence. Faith is trusting when things don't look good. Quite often, we think of faith as being how strong you believe. And it is that to a degree, because the more faith you have, the more you believe. However, faith is a specific kind of belief, as again, as, as I think Paul said in Hebrews, you know, as he said, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So when you're waiting for something to happen, and when you can't see all the evidence, that's when faith has its greatest opportunity. Now, we generally think that if God would give us a little more evidence, our faith would increase. Boy, if I could just see a miracle, that'd be do great things for my faith. Really, if God does a miracle for you, he's not helping your faith one bit. In fact, he's making you need less faith. And there are times when God does miracles because you really do need it. You're, you're falling so hard, but it, you need a miracle because your faith isn't what it ought to be. It really shouldn't be that way. No, now here, he's, God is saying, watching these guys attack and trusting me, despite so much of what you see of evidence to the contrary, gives you a chance to live by faith. And you just wish I would act quickly, but what I've put you in is a perfect situation for you to learn to walk by faith. And it's, it's like the old don't shoot until you see the whites of their eyes thing. Wait, wait, let them get close enough. Boom. And, and that's the way God tends to work. His timing is impeccable. It's unbelievable. And he doesn't want you worrying so much about how is he going to get me out of this jam? That would spoil half the fun. He just wants you to be patient and walk in faith and watch. And you'll see after you look back, boy, he knew what he was doing. His timing was amazing. And so... That's God's response to these questions of how long is it going to be and why are you letting these people get away with this stuff? Verse 5, indeed, because he transgresses by wine, he's a proud man and he doesn't stay at home because he enlarges his desire as hell and he is like death and cannot be satisfied. He gathers to himself all nations and heaps up for himself all peoples. In other words, I know how greedy he is, and I'm going to use that against him. That's my opportunity to dangle the bait out there, and I'm going to reel him in. It's his greed. Will not all these take up a proverb against him and a taunting riddle against him and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his. How long? And to him who loads himself with many pledges... Will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Will they not awaken who oppress you? <coughs> and you will become their booty. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. So before he's saying, 
everybody sees what you're doing and it's a lesson to them when they see what happens to you. And what goes around comes around. You've plundered others and those who are left are going to plunder you. Because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and of all who dwell in it, woe to him who covets evil gain for his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. He says, if you're greedy, if you're just accumulating things for you and you don't care who you step on in order to get what you want so that you can be up on your high, safe place and feel like you're buying your own security, doesn't work that way. You, you think you can be delivered from the power of disaster by greedily accumulating things, but that never gives power. You give shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many peoples and sin against your soul. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the timbers will answer it. All around you is evidence of your corruption. Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the peoples labor to feed the fire and nations weary themselves in vain? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. After everything that you've done, you're going to pay the price and then people are going to know who I am. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. So you cozy up to somebody and get them drunk so that you can take advantage of them. In this case, uh, the idea of uncovered nakedness is doing something lewd uh, with them. But it, it, it's certainly a bad thing to do personally, but it's also a picture of the nation. And as the nation would do this to the nations that surrounded them, buddy up to them, get them intoxicated, and then take advantage of them. You are filled with shame instead of glory, and you also drink and be exposed as uncircumcised. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you, and utter shame will be on your glory. You can fake your glory, but ultimately shame is coming because of how you got your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will cover you, and the plunder of beasts which made them afraid because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and of all who dwell in it. So you're going to be a victim of that which you victimized, including the animals, the way that you took advantage and hurt them. What profit is the image, the idol? What good is it? That its maker should carve it? The molded image, a teacher of lies, that the maker of its mold should trust in it to make mute idols? What is with people who worship the idols they made? And how can you hear anything from it? You made it. You know it. And whether literally idolatry or whether in other ways people are self-made men or self-made women, and then you worship that, woe to him who says to wood, awake. You're trying to, you're trying to make something living out of something that's dead. To silent stone, arise, it shall teach. 
Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet in it there is no breath at all. There's no, there's no future to, to accumulating riches. There's no future to carving images or even buying them on credit and expecting somehow that that's going to satisfy your life. Verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. God has something to say. Everything else out there that people worship, ultimately it'll be silenced. In fact, God, as he is in his holy temple, he's going to shut everyone else up. He's the one who has the message that matters. <laughs> when I was a kid, we had junior church at our church. It was um, during the main church service. We had Sunday school hour and then main church hour, and the kids went into the junior church. And I remember this verse, verse 20, because they had a little song that we always sang right before junior church started. And it was, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence, keep silence before him. The message was clear. Kids, be quiet during junior church. So that brings back memories. It didn't work. Chapter 3, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shiglanoth. What is Shiglanoth? We don't know. It, it's probably a musical term, so it was either a designation because he's, he writes a song here, and so it's either the way that they would play it or perhaps an instrument that would play the lead part or something, but we have a, the, a similar word used over in the Psalms one time, and we don't know what it means either. O oh Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. God, you got my attention. O oh Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So he said, God, I hear what you have to say. Just do your thing. Do your work. And if it takes you years, and we're just in the middle of those years right now, it's been a while and it's going to be even longer, God, just... Do your thing, but in wrath remember mercy. God came from Teman. Teman was a city over there in the area of the Edomites. The Holy One from Mount Paran, which is in the desert by Sinai. Now, and then he says, Selah, think about it. it he now takes, you know, he, he already told God, God, you do what you want to do. And now in his song, he is reciting what God did when he led the children of Israel out of Egypt and, and across the Red Sea and through the desert and ultimately to the Jordan River. And so the, the pathway that went from Teman, which is over on the other side, and down to Sinai, down to Mount Paran, where they got the law, now he's saying, God, you led us all that way. We want you to lead us. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. He had rays flashing from his hand, and there his power was hidden. Probably referring to the flashes of light that came as God not only led them by night with that pillar of fire, but when he, would, when he came there on Sinai and and just all of the magnificent light show that God put on as he, as he brought the law. 
Before him, verse 5, went pestilence and fever followed at his feet. So the enemies that were surrounding as God brought the children of Israel in, he did whatever he needed to do to destroy them. Verse 6, he stood and measured the earth. (laughs) When Joshua led the children of Israel into the promised land, they had it all surveyed and carved off, and God was the one who told everyone where their land was. And so he's saying God was a, a surveyor who can give the earth to whoever he wants. He looked and startled the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills bowed. His, his ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The people in Cush were one of the first people of, in the Canaanites that were conquered the curtains of the land of midian trembled again more more canaanites who were who were tossed out of the land and their civilization destroyed so that god could give the land to the children of israel as he had promised verse 8 o lord were you displeased with the rivers was your anger against the rivers was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses your chariots of salvation in other words, you parted the sea, but it wasn't the sea you were dealing with. You carved up the land, including where the rivers were as borders and everything, but it wasn't about the land and it wasn't about the rivers. It was about your salvation. It was about what you wanted to do to save your people. Your bow was made quite ready. You had it cocked and ready to go. Oaths were sworn over your arrows. In other words, everything you did, it seemed like you directed it specifically to affect what you had planned. You divided the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered its voice and lifted its hands on high. Just you came through and you moved things however you wanted to in order to Bring about salvation. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of your arrows they went, at the shining of your glittering spear. Remember over in Joshua chapter 10 when they were chasing the enemy and God started chucking, you know, balls of fire and brimstone at them like uh, lit up arrows, as he says here. And Joshua said, God, can you give us a longer day so we can round these people up? And God actually caused the day to be extended. God did that. Verse 12, you marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for salvation with your anointed. You struck the head from the house of the wicked by laying bare from foundation to neck. You accomplished your salvation, and a part of this is probably looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ when on the cross he defeated Satan, smashed him, as had been prophesied in Genesis chapter 3, that that he would wound the heel of the seed of woman, but that he would crush the enemy's head, and that's exactly what he did. You thrust through with his own arrows the head of his villages, 
They came out like a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was like feasting on the poor in secret. You walked through the sea with your horses through the heap of great waters. God, you did all that stuff. In verse 16, when I heard, my body trembled. I was just amazed. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. I've seen what you've done. Makes me shake to think about what you're going to do. But God, you're the king, and and you do what you're going to do. And verse 17, as he kind of wraps up his little song here, he says, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, all of those pictures of things aren't looking good, the fig tree isn't blossoming, There's no fruit popping up on the vines, no olives on the olive tree. The fields aren't yielding crops. The flocks cut off. We have no herd in the stalls yet. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high hills. He goes, you know what? I don't care how bad things look. If I don't even see a clue or a hint of what you are going to do, I don't see the blossoms that are about ready to sprout, but you know what? I'm going to rejoice in you anyway. I am going to choose to do what We were exhorted to do in chapter 2, the just will live by faith. And where faith starts isn't in just try to believe, try to believe, try to believe. You can't make yourself believe something. But what you can do is rejoice even when things aren't looking good. And it's amazing how that affects our faith and feeds our faith that much more. When we look at what God has done in the past, that's why faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We look what he's done in the past and we go in the same way that Habakkuk here took that history of the children of Israel from Egypt all the way into conquering the promised land. And he goes, that was an amazing story. And so even though I don't see what's happening here and I don't understand and I question your timing, but when it comes down to it, God, I'm just going to celebrate. It's time to rejoice because I know who you are. And I know what you can do. I know what you have done in the past. It's the ultimate test. When things aren't looking good, can you rejoice or not? It's not just about enduring. It's not just about sucking it up and, okay, like a stoic. It's about finding cause for rejoicing. And as he says in verse 19 in the King James Version, talks about hinds feet in high places. It's where that little women's um, novel uh, came from that's kind of like a women's version of uh, Pilgrim's Progress, Hinds Feet in High Places, written back in the 50s by um, 
some uh, an English lady. But the whole idea there is just skipping across the hills, staying above it all. Can we do that? Can we decide, I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to be a person who finds a reason to praise God. And if I can't see what he's doing right now, I'll praise him for what he's done in the past. Because what he has done in the past is incredibly connected with what he's going to do in the future because he never changes. He has perfect timing, always has, always will. And so the call of faith for all of us starts with rejoicing. It starts with having a better attitude. Even before we see things happening, it's great when you start to see things happening. You get some encouraging news and you go, Woohoo, I'm going to rejoice. But how about rejoicing when there isn't any sign of encouragement there? That is faith. And that's something that God will honor and something that blesses him and something that he appreciates. And as you find that place of praise, as you find that place of joy, then you find yourself skipping across the mountaintops then you find yourself elevated to a place that you didn't really think that you could even go. And then you get that great joy when God comes through, as he always will. You don't act all surprised, but you go, I knew it. I knew God was going to do something. This is even better than I thought of, but I expected this. We should never be so surprised and shocked by God We should always be saying, I know him well, and I'm going to rejoice. He is my strength. He's the one who's going to make me walk on high hills. And then it just ends up to the chief musician with my stringed instrument. So he goes, he gave these lyrics to a musician and said, here, make this into a song. (laughs) Awesome stuff. Let's pray.